You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Mariner's Memories. Each week on Mariner's Memories, we visit with a former Mariner's player or coach, and we relive some of the great days in their Mariners career and Major League Baseball career. This week, we visit with former Mariners pitching coach Brian Price. We start our conversation today with Brian about, of course, you know he was the pitching coach for the Mariners, but before that, he was a player in the Mariners system. I was hoping we were going to avoid that today. Um, no, actually, you know, there were some great times because it was my second organization. I had been released by the Angels in uh, spring training of 87 and was signed by the Mariners in the fall of 87. So my first spring training was 88, and I made the Vermont Club, which was a double-A club, and I bounced between double-A and triple-A the next uh, year and a half or so before I, I tur- turned into or went into coaching. But uh, the, the 88 team in Vermont uh, is one of my all-time favorite teams that I was ever a part of as a player. And um, we we uh, ended up losing in the championship series to the to the Yankees in the Eastern League, um, but played with some terrific guys. Jim Wilson, who had a short career with Seattle and in the big leagues, but really a tremendous guy and a tremendous player. And we had Eric Fox and we had uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Omar Vizquel was on that club. Dave Brundage, Dave Myers, uh, both longtime Mariner employees and, and, and players in the system. Um, and one of my long friends, longtime friends, probably my longest in the Mariner family, Tom Newberg, was the trainer there. And he had a long career as the big league assistant trainer and then the trainer also in Tacoma. So um, some really long lifetime relationships there on a really good team with a lot of fun guys and, and guys that I still stay in touch with in large part. What do you remember about an 18-year-old Ken Griffey Jr.? <laughs> Well, it was funny because, uh, you know, I th- the, the thing, our club was, I think we were the most senior club in the league. I think our average age is about 24, which is relatively high for, for double A. And, um, and so, you know, junior comes up and in the second half and he had had a terrific year in San Bernardino, but you know, this kid's a year removed from, uh, yeah, a year removed from high school. And his confidence is, you know, he, obviously the skill set was beyond everybody else on the club and in the league, but it was uh, the confidence of a young guy like that and the fact that uh, he was able to hand himself, handle himself well around a bunch of veteran guys because it's a, it was a different game. You know, this is 30-something years ago, but it was a different game in the sense that no one got a free pass. It didn't matter what your background was, your lineage, your draft status, your anything, uh, your prospect status, et cetera, is that you just uh, – you had to be one of the guys. And if you weren't, you just got wore out. And so we wore him out a fair bit just because he was a young kid and he took it in great stride. And, uh, and he was an impactful part in the second half club that ended up playing all the way into the, into the championship series. Did you know coaching was always going to be a path? Oh, no, absolutely not. I had no dreams of coaching my dream. Like I think every other kid that loves baseball was to be, you know, the best left-handed pitcher in history and and break all of Steve Carlton's records and, and be an all-star and a hall of famer and win some world series and all that stuff that we all fantasize about as kids. If, if you want to be a ball player, you know, no one, no one thinks about being a, a minor league baseball coach or a major league manager when they're 15 or 20 or 25, if you're still playing ball. But I, I think that in 89, when I knew my days were numbered and, and I just wasn't good enough, uh, 
that was the first time I thought about coaching. And another uh, former Mariner front office guy was a guy that really got me thinking about it. It was Bill Bavese because uh, when I was released from the angels, Bill was a minor league farm director and they offered, he offered me a coaching job at that point in time. I think it was only 24 or 25. And, uh, and he had offered me a, uh, a minor league coaching job at that point in time. And he said, and, and if not, and if you want to keep playing, uh, give me a call when you, when you get done. And uh, so that's what kind of planted the seed. I still wasn't ready to do it, but when I did finally choose to retire at midseason in 89, um, I was in Williamsport with the Mariners double-A club there. You know, I thought really seriously about coaching, and my good fortune was my manager, uh, Jay Reed, was very um, uh, influential in making that phone call to the front office and recommending me as a coach, and that, that kind of got me in the, uh, in the slot there for the opportunity. You know, nowadays it's not unusual to see coaches without a major league playing background. When you broke in, it wasn't as common as now. What did it mean to you to put on the major league uniform for the first time? Super special. You know, I think that, uh, and I agree with you, I think that uh, some of us that are career minor league guys, um, I hate to use this, the, the cliche, the chip on the shoulder. I don't think it was a chip. I think it was an awareness that uh, you got to do it better. You know, I remember Oral Hershiser getting the job in Texas and doing a super job with that staff, but he was Oral Hershiser, mm-hmm. you know, so he didn't have, you know, and I had, you know, 16 years in the minor leagues, you know, five as a player, 11 as a coach. So I, I, I learned early, shut up, learn from smarter people. And when you have enough confidence and you know enough, then I can start to maybe have a bit of, of an opinion but to go to Seattle, especially because, you know, remember my years in Seattle, I mean, the Mariners were, were bad. I mean, as a big league club, the organization didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a ton of prospects. Um, we couldn't go out there and get the best free agents. We weren't drawing a lot in Seattle. So coming up through the system and then having, you know, I was a minor league coach in the 95 season, which was the miracle year. You know, we all were so thrilled about that throughout the system. And then to get up there in 2000 and be in the, on, the, on the team that made the wild card, uh, won the wild card, and ended up getting uh, going six games against the Yankees in the ALCS, there's nothing like it. Because, you know, my first six games in Seattle as a pitching coach were three against Boston, three against New York, you know, against the Yankees. And uh, the great catch by uh, Mike Cameron in center field going over the center field wall to Rob uh, to rob uh, Derek Jeter of a home run in the first inning off Paul Abbott um, in what I think really entrenched Mike Cameron as, as the replacement for, for Junior and kind of be able to get that monkey off his back and, and uh, really was a, a prelude to an unbelievable season and a really nice stretch of about four years of excellent baseball in Seattle. Well, you were right there in 2001, which is just an incredible season. 116 wins that is just still hard to think about how that happened. I mean, you were there. You had a front row seat. How did that happen? 116 wins in a season. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, when I knew I was going to do this with you, Gary, this podcast, I I, um, went back and looked a little bit at some of the things that were accomplished in 2000 and 2001. And we did make, you know, I think the biggest impact really of all the great players that we added was the addition of Pat Gillick Mm. and what Pat did in 2000 by, you know, by going out and getting Aaron Seeley and Arthur Rhodes and trying to fine tuning the club, finding a Joe Oliver, 
you know, uh, 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 Ricky Henderson there in, in the early in the season to help impact the club. Um, really made a huge difference. Uh, Kaz Sasaki from Japan, which we have no idea what he was capable of doing really coming into spring training. But that two, that 2000 club, I went back and looked at the numbers. I said, the numbers weren't that dominating, even though we had still had A-Rod and, and, and Edgar had a huge year and, and Jay was still in pretty good, you know, form before his injury started to beat him up. Um, you know, I looked at the pitching, you know, nobody did anything really flash, you know, Jamie Moyer didn't have his typical great year and, and Freddie Garcia missed some time. Sealy was our most, uh, you know, our, our most uh, uh, successful starter, won 17 games for us. But there was a connectivity with guys like Mark McLemore, Stan Javier. We ended up getting Al Martin uh, with already terrific guys. And then we go in 01 and you get Boone and you get, uh, and you get Jeff Nelson and you get, of course, Ichiro and some of the moves that Pat was able to make to solidify that club. And there were times, I, I remember that 15-game winning streak, times where it just seemed like it was a team that was completely unbeatable, that there wasn't an equal in the American League that could – could handle what we had to offer. So inevitably, of course, the, the, the playoff series against, uh, not, not really even just against the Yankees, but even that, that game, that series against the Indians was a disappointment because we were a far better team. They were, they were really good, but we were the far better team. They took us to five games. They beat us up bad in game three, like 17 to four or something like that. It was, uh, and, and that five game playoff series, but when you reflect upon that season, that, that 162 game season, nothing like it. And I, the fans that were there could remember it. I mean, the packed houses and the electricity and the, the many, how many ninth, ninth inning comeback victories and 59 games, I think won by four runs or more. It was sensational, especially with, with uh, what we had to tangle with, um, you know, in our division with Oakland. And then of course, in, in, in the Eastern division as well. You mentioned Ichiro, and at the time, you know, it, it's easy to look at his Hall of Fame career now, but there was some questions when he came over exactly what kind of player he would be, and of course he's ended up being a Hall of Famer. What do you remember about watching Ichiro in those early days? Well, I remember because I think that everyone that has followed the Mariners through the years knows the story about Ichiro in spring training and fouling balls over the third base dugout. It didn't look like he could catch up to a major league fastball. And Lou made a comment to him in a game one time, you know, you ever going to pull a ball, you know, and, and Ichiro hits one in Peoria, you know, 900 miles to right field comes in. He says, will that do? And Lou goes, yeah, yeah, that's good. We're good, son. You know how he does. And, the thing that was so remarkable about it beyond the speed and the defense is that to have a player that was so, um, multifaceted. So, um, so he could defend He's a gold glover. He could throw, he could run, he could hit, he could hit for power when he wanted, he could have hit for more pay. He could have won the home run derby. Seriously. I mean, the way he hit in spring in uh, batting practice against all of us coaches that threw against him, if he wanted to, to hit the ball out for all batting practice, he could do it it was fascinating that he was able to not only do that, but come over in his first year in a different country and blend with veteran players. That was a veteran team, you know? So we did have, you know, we had Boone, we had Olerud, we had uh, David Bell, we had Danny Wilson, you know, we had Cameron, we had Buner, you know, we had Javier McLemore, et cetera. We had guy, guy after guy after guy, um, a really accomplished veteran players. And he mixed in so well, he was quiet. He went out, he did a spectacular job. And um, I was really fortunate my first, that his first five years in Seattle, uh, you know, I was there to watch it because it was really special for me as a coach to watch that type of ability play um, front and center every day. 
You mentioned Lou. And in his managing history, I think it's fair to say he went through pitching coaches fairly quickly in his Mariner tenure. There, there wasn't one that lasted more than two years until you became the pitching coach for Lou Pinoa. How were you able to form that trust, that working relationship that works so well between you and Lou? You know, I don't know. I always felt like it was kind of a mentorship when I was with him, you know, and he had some veteran, some veteran guys there. You know, he had, uh, he had uh, Nardi Contreras and Bobby Cuellar and, and Stan Williams and, and a series of guys there that, that worked for him. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if there was something that he saw in me, like that he had an obligation to kind of help me. Cause I, you know, I'd never coached in the big leagues before. So you know, when you're in the minor leagues and you're, 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 you're focusing on trying to win games, but you also have the obligation and, and, and the, the need to make sure that your pitchers are getting adequate amount of opportunity. So if you have a winning streak, but a guy hasn't, you have a reliever that hasn't pitched in four or five days, you need to get that kid in there and it might cost you a ball game and you can't really do that in the big league. So him teaching me how to run a, a major league pitching staff and, and how to see things in advance and not just look at who's the freshest, you know, but look more at matchups and what's going to happen and who are the pinch hitters that they have down the line, you know, that, that could come in and impact us. And who do we want to have ready, um, you know, later in the ball game for that particular situation, understanding the managerial moves that have, have, have been made uh, historically by the particular manager we're playing against. So it was pretty special, but I think he, you know, there was a, there was a moment, I won't go into great detail, but there was a point in time where I really needed to stand up for myself. Um, in 1999, there was a moment where I was kind of filling in there with the club. And so I was traveling with the team and throwing batting practice and helping out where I could. And so I kind of got into a little scrap in there. Um, and I just stood my ground. Uh, and it was, uh, I felt like I, I didn't, hadn't done anything wrong. I was being accused of doing something that I shouldn't have been doing. And it bothered me greatly, but I stood my ground. And I think he respected the fact that I believed in what I was doing and that I, you know, I was trying to help and, and things of that nature. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but I think it was, uh, it was a seminal moment really. in him knowing that I, I could handle the environment, given the opportunity. I think about all the time that you spent, I mean, you were one of the best pitchers in Cal history you're banging away in the minor leagues as a pitcher. You're banging away as a coach in the minor leagues. Was there a time in those early days in the big leagues where you look around and had a, a big league moment? Like, here I am after all this work, all this time? There was. And and um, I think the first time was making a mound visit, you know, in that early, those early series against Boston and New York in 2000. Um and probably, probably the biggest moment was when we were in New York. And if you remember, uh, it was in 2000 and, uh, we had brought in Arthur Rhodes to face uh, David justice. And, and what, what to me was the turnabout, you know, the, the, the one biggest moment in that whole series was uh, a two, one pitch that Arthur threw to, uh, to justice and justice did this huge check swing. And the third base umpire didn't have the fortitude to say that he went because it's in Yankee stadium in front of 50 something thousand people. And he wouldn't pull the trigger. The count goes two and two, but instead he says that justice didn't swing. And then the three, one pitch justice hits into the upper deck um, to give them the lead in a game that we lost. And that was, I think game game two of that series where we were ahead one, nothing. And um, anyway, so, 
I remember Lou right after that said, Brian, go out there and settle them down, you know, because it's a huge moment. Place is going crazy. And I remember that as, as dire that situ- as that situation was, that I couldn't believe that I was there, that I was out there and these people were yelling and they're going crazy and they're hammering me and they're hammering the team. And I just loved it. And I said, this, this is it. This is why we do what we do or moments like this and to get this opportunity to do this. And I would have loved to have been able to say I'd done it as a player, but uh, being able to do it as a coach and, and, and try to help and be one of those assistants that helps these guys along the way. Uh, I, I can't say that the players enjoyed it any more than I did because I absolutely loved it. You worked with so many different players in your career. Do you have a player or two that you're most proud of, the, the strides that they were able to make in their career, leaps that they were able to make in their career that you helped be a part of? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think it's because, you know, you know, like you alluded to, I had a long you know career with the Mariners before I ever got to Seattle. So I, I knew a lot of these guys you know, Jeff Nelson and I were teammates, you know, so it was, <laughs> you know, so I coached him too, which was really interesting. And a lot of these guys I played against in the minor leagues as we were coming up and things of that nature. So I had some neat pre-existing relationships. And I think one of the best uh, was with Ryan Franklin, because Ryan was a kind of a mid, maybe a late, late 19th, 20th round pick out of junior college and and he could always pitch but he was always a forgotten guy you know he didn't throw hard and and uh, uh he was a starter and he threw innings and he threw strikes but you know people didn't really look at him as a prospect and those of us that coach in the minor leagues and see him all year on your team you know we we know what these guys can do and now we have to go project this work in the big leagues and a lot of us felt that it would but he never was on the roster um, and he got called up in 99 for a short time. He was up for maybe a week or two. And then he got sent back to the minor leagues, taken off the roster, et cetera. And in 2001, he had been on the gold medal, uh, us team in 2000, 2001, uh, he could be a minor league free agent if he didn't make the club and he could go out and he could, whatever he could go out and, and, uh, go wherever he wanted to. And Pat Gillick said, you guys really got to watch this kid. You got to really give him every opportunity. And he ended up making it in our bullpen. And eventually, you know, in 02, part of 02 and 03, was in our rotation. 03 was in the top 10 in ERA, threw over 200 innings. And he just was a self-made man. Mm. And he ended up having a terrific, like, 11-year major league career. He's a closer for the Cardinals. He was on part of some really good clubs in Seattle and St. Louis and had an impactful career. And, and that guy, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys that had great relationships, but to watch this kid throwing 86, 88 miles an hour in double A as a starter, build some arm strength, get himself into a position to become a, a, not just a big leaguer, but a good big leaguer, both as a starter and as a reliever and eventually as a closer was special for me because he's a really humble, nice kid and he worked hard and finally he got the respect he deserved. Speaking of that, it's hard to believe, especially these days, to think about a rotation that takes the ball every single time during the course of a season. But you had that. You had a rotation that literally the five guys took the ball every single time. That is astonishing. Yeah, Gary, you know, it's funny because um, I, I think we were loosely aware of it towards the end of the season. And Jamie Moyer was smart enough. He pitched, I think he pitched the last game of the year in 2003, the year that those, those five guys made. I actually have a picture up here of those five guys. 
up on my wall here. It's not right. in the background, but, uh, and it was a picture that Jamie, you, you'll see it's an interesting shot because he's, it, it, it's, it's, it's at Safeco last game of the season, all five starters on the mound, four of them with tennis shoes on and Jamie with his spikes on because he was just about ready to run and go down to the bullpen and throw his, his pregame. And he told all those guys, Hey, it, it may never happen again you know, get out there, let's get out there and get a capture, a picture of this. And they were kind enough to, 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 to put, give me one at the end of the season and present one to me. And, um, that was so incredibly special because there were, you know, in a big league baseball season, you know, guys are beat up a little bit, especially, you know, um, trying to go start to finish and, and, uh, and, and not have any extra days off or have a kid that comes up and maybe gives the guys a breather and we give somebody a spot start from the minor leagues or whatever. And they just relished it. And the one thing I do remember is, is the next year in 04, we took a little flack because I think Panero had some, uh, strained his elbow and we had a couple of guys, maybe Gilmesh might've been a little bit beat up or whatever. And it all came back to this, you know, this 2003, they overused him. And I said, isn't that the goal though? Isn't the goal for everyone to stay healthy and pitch effectively and efficiently enough to keep their job? Mm. I mean, isn't that really the goal? It wasn't like these guys were throwing complete game, 160 pitch starts. I mean, they were just unbelievably effective, determined, efficient in, in, in a competitive situation went all the way down to September, the end of September before the division was defined. And, uh, they're just total gamers. And I just, it bothered me a bit in 04 when there was some criticism about how they were used because all they did was do everything you would ever ask this group to do. And they did it beautifully. You saw a very young Felix Hernandez coming up who has turned out to be the best pitcher in Seattle Mariners history. He carved out a tremendous Mariners career. What do you remember about a very young Felix? Well, he was terrific. And you know, I, uh, we had a really super group of player development staff at the time. So these guys were going from, you know, they were going through, you know, we had Rafael Chavez, we had Steve Peck, we had Pat Rice, we had Jim Slate, and we had a, a bunch of guys in, in the system that were really good at developing pitching. And as they came through the system, you know, I, I had seen Felix play catch in the outfield at Safeco just after he signed. I think he was 16 years old. And he played catch out in left field. We went and watched him. You know, we had done it before with like Shinsu Chu and some of these other guys, you know, they come over and they're 18 years old, 16 years old. And, and you see him and you go, okay, well, maybe he's going to be good. I don't know. <laughs> so so oh, it's only a couple of years later. Here's this kid. They said, hey, we're sending you Felix Hernandez. And, you know, of course, I was aware of what he was doing in the minor leagues, but um, hadn't really seen it firsthand. You know, they didn't, you know, the, the, the front office didn't really want him in big league camp throwing for us and getting us excited about him, maybe making the club, the opening day club. So they kind of kept them from us. So he comes up, I think his first starts in Detroit, he dominates. I think we lose two to one or whatever. And he's just this combination. If you go back and look at his stats, it wasn't the strikeout numbers. It was the fact that he struck out a fair share but the hitters had a hard time getting him in the air because he had this, you know, that I remember that season, that, that Oh five season, I think he made about a dozen starts for us. He was a ground ball strikeout pitcher. He's a guy that would throw, you know, that averaged over seven innings a start lost to Randy Johnson at Safeco two nothing. Uh, and I think he pitched eight innings against Randy, I think through a complete game. And this kid would be, he'd get 21 outs, and he'd have nine strikeouts 
and maybe two fly balls and the rest of them are ground balls. And it was just, this kid's going to be able to pitch forever because he doesn't have to throw 20 plus pitches per inning because he strikes so many guys out. He gets the ground ball. He can get the double play ball. He didn't pitch away from contact. The kid had a phenomenal career and is a, is a Mariner legend. And, and really during his generation, perhaps arguably uh, one of the top two or three starters in the league or in, in baseball. You know, I think about pitching coaches and, you know, from the outside, it could be a, a thankless job, right? From the outside, it, you, you're a guy that can get a lot of criticism from the outside. It can be tough. But what did you enjoy most about being a pitching coach? Well, you know, I think we all do this. We, we play the sport, and those for those of us that get done playing and stay in it in, in scouting or, or coaching, or it, it, it's, it's because of the fraternity in which we travel with. It's about the people. Uh, you're not ch- chasing the money. You know, they're, they're really, if you think about it, there's so few people that get to the major leagues as a coach or a manager to think that that's really going to be in the cards for you. It's like being a low round draft pick thinking that you're going to have a 15 year major league career. You know, you go, okay, well, I'm in rookie ball coaching. Can I really envision myself being a major league coach, but you do it because of the, the, the camaraderie, the fraternal nature of the job. And, you know, back then, you know, the Mariners, uh, so my first year was, uh, was not 89 as a coach, as a minor league coach you're not making anything, you know, you're making barely enough to, to, to pay your bills. Uh, many of us were sleeping in the clubhouses on the road when we were, you know, in different parts of the country coaching, it wasn't unusual. And, um, but we did it because we love it. Think about what you're sacrificing. You're sacrificing time with your family. You're sacrificing maybe doing something that could be financially more rewarding in the future. Uh, all the chase, not even the dream of being in the big leagues, but the dream of, continuing these relationships with your fellow coaches and managers and trainers and strength guys and being a part of an organization and then taking those 12 pitchers each year Mm. and just getting a chance to build a bond and build camaraderie and somehow, some way, maybe try to help them in a way that can allow them to to make one more jump and get a little bit closer to the big leagues. And um, during my time, the best gift that I was given was being able to coach in the Mariner organization the time that I did for those 11 seasons and be around Gary Wheelock and be around Bobby Cuellar, you know, be, be around some of the really impactful player development people in that system, Pat Rice, Jim Slayton, Rafael Chavez, you know, guy after guy after guy who may not all be household names as coaches, but were hugely impactful in player development uh, in, in ways that uh, affected the Mariners greatly from, from, for almost a decade of really good, consistent player development uh, from a pitching perspective. So I was really pleased. It helped me immensely to, uh, to be around those guys and get better. Do you have a favorite moment in a Mariners uniform? I, I, this is, and this is going to be a little strange, but certainly, you know, the, the Carlos Gann safety squeeze at, at, with, with Ricky Henderson scoring in that ballpark uh, to beat the White Sox was really unbelievable, you know, sensational moment. Um, the, 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 the last game of the season in 2000 when we had to beat uh, Anaheim. And Aaron Seeley's down two nothing bases loaded, nobody out in the first, and he doesn't give up another run, and we don't give up another run. Uh, unbelievable, huge game, celebrating that wild card win. But really, the greatest moment was for me was uh, getting to the playoffs in 2000, and Jose Mesa coming out of the bullpen, and the people coming out of their seats to embrace him on his way in to the ball game out of our bullpen because he had been 
obliterated by the fan base for the bulk of his time in, in a Mariner uniform. And then Kazasaki comes in, in in 2000, takes the job from him in the lot, last last uh, day of spring training. And Jose, really, it, it was a struggle for him to find a spot for him to pitch out of the bullpen. And he had a game in Tampa where he gave up six or seven runs in a, in a game in which we were behind. We had to get him out of the game, brought John Mabry in to finish the game. And he could not have been in a deeper, darker place. Mm. And to get to that place where he was coming out of the bullpen and, and our fans were embracing him and he was performing was a highlight for me to see that guy get that type of reception in Seattle after over a year of really being kind of the whipping boy there uh, was uh, really un- was, was really something to watch. You carved out such a phenomenal career. Of course, you moved on to Arizona being a pitching coach, manager and pitching coach of the Reds, pitching coach for the Phillies. Now that uh, you stepped away from the Phillies, have you reflected on all that you've been able to accomplish in your baseball career? It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, and I, I loved every minute. Um, I really did. And I, I do reflect upon some of these moments we're talking about now. I think the thing that's been probably the most important has been somehow some way trying to maintain the relationships because the one thing about the sport as you know gary is that the season ends and everybody goes their own way and then not the whole group is brought back again the next year so some relationships that are really important and deep and really connected they they tend to disappear a bit because guys get traded or released or you know or coaches get fired managers get fired and you lose lose the the closeness and the time together with some of your favorite people. So I think that's really kind of what I, what I focus on. One of the guys that I had with Cincinnati was with for seven or eight years total um, between Cincinnati and Philadelphia was Jay Bruce, who just retired um, from the Yankees and really one of the true professionals and great humans that I've had, had the good fortune of being around in the sport. And so that's not a relationship I want to lose, even though he's, you know, he's going into more into just being a, a husband and a family man and going into his retirement. Um, but it's not easy to nurture, you know, because a lot of these young guys are, are still uh, raising families and doing what they need to do. You don't want some old geezer saying, Hey, you remember that time, you know, <laughs> calling them up, <laughs> bending their ear when they got a diaper to change or a ball game to go watch or, or something of that nature. So, um, that's been the best because I, I really had the good fortune of staying in touch with guys like Jamie Moyer and Aaron Seeley and, and a lot of the guys, those Mariner guys that, uh, you know, um, JJ Putt still lives out here, you know, and he was, he was a guy that came through the system when I was pitching coordinator and ended up having a really nice career in particular with, with the Mariners. And there's just a lot of guys that you want to stay in touch with. You don't see as much as you'd like. And I probably spend more time focused on that than on on kind of the path that, that I went down. You know, I think about all the different personalities that you coached in Seattle, all the different styles as well. I mean, you mentioned a couple of them right there. Moyer with the super slow change, Kaz with the splitter, and uh, the way Rhodes went after guys, the fireballer lefty, Sealy the big curveball. It's just it's really interesting just the mix of personalities and styles that you've dealt with in Seattle. 
yeah, you know, uh, Jose Paniagua and Norm Charlton and yeah. the, that whole bunch, you know, there was so many fun guys and none more fun than, than Norm. And get him and Pat Borders together. That was something. Get them in the food room. Get them going. That was nothing I enjoyed more. And, and then in comes Tom Lampkin or, you know, Joe Oliver or, you know, Al Martin or any number of guys that, that you know, the guys that, sometimes for the most, even the more enjoyable were some of the guys that kind of were more, weren't, weren't necessarily the Mariner icons, mm. but the guys that kind of played a role and did a nice job, you know, and, and, um, uh, and there's so many of those guys, but I'll tell you, you're right. I mean, uh, uh, when you got a guy like Sasaki, if you really think about it, comparatively speaking, today's closer, he's throwing 89 to 93 with a, with a fork ball and a cruddy big slow curveball that he barely ever threw. And he was a fireman of the year on a great team. And uh, Arthur Rhodes had an ERA under two, pitched in 70 games. Uh, I think he was 10 and one or 10 and oh, something like that in 2001. Uh, Jeff Nelson, the side armor, and Paniagua, hard sinker. And, you know, it was just one after the other of these guys that were just a different style, but just so professional and so good. And yeah, Jamie Moyer set the stage because no one worked harder. And no one threw softer and he did it beautifully for 265 or 70 wins in his career. So, um, yeah, it was really a blessing to be around those guys. Cause from those guys, you learn, that's how you learn how to coach is having a chance to have guys that do it differently. And you have to find a way to get to know them and, and, and learn from them. Um, especially guys that have more time in the big leagues than I did when I first got up there, you know, as you really learn from guys like Seeley and Moyer and, and, uh, and some of the, the crafty veterans, uh, Arthur Rhodes, et cetera, that can teach you a lot about the game. We kind of talked about you beating the odds to become a major league coach. You kind of did it again to become a manager. We don't see pitching coaches for whatever reason, often transition into that role. How much did you enjoy managing the Cincinnati Reds? Well, as much as you can for as much as we lost, yeah. you know, was, uh, it was, it's a, it, it's a door that's, that swung both ways for me because, um, I think the first part, you know, if you're me or Bud Black or Larry Rothschild or whoever these pitching guys are, um, uh, that get this opportunity, uh, is you don't want to mess it up for the next guy. Mm. And, you know, so in Cincinnati, um, we had a good first half in my first year in 2014. And after that, we just weren't very good. We didn't win many games. And so that was probably the one thing that weighed down the, the enjoyment because actually managing the game, managing the personalities, building the relationships, making the decisions, being, you know, hyper self-critical, um, you know, trying to keep a finger on the pulse of what's happening in everybody's life, not just the players, but the coaches, the trainers, you know, the, for the, the clubhouse staff, et cetera. I love that absolutely loved it as a matter of fact if that's probably the only way i would get back into the sport again would be to get a managerial opportunity uh as far as on field but um it was the other side of that of course is that we lost and we lost a lot and i just didn't think it was fair to the reds fans that that we lost with that amount of regularity in an effort to try to rebuild and it was painful and it was painful for all of us. And my, my hats are off to all the players and coaches that worked their tails off to put a, a respectable uh, team on the field, but more important to put an effort, you know, to have a team that put effort in every day. Cause that's all we could really strive for was give the guy, give the fans something to watch, keep them interested in the game, play your tails off. You know, we'll win the games that we're supposed to win, but you know, we just, we just were non-competitive and that's, that was the hardest part of the whole thing. 
This question may be impossible. Do you have a best pitcher that you coached? A guy that you're like, wow, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Yeah, well, I would have a list. Yeah. So I now I'd have to go down and there's no specific order, but you know, so you've got Moyer, Felix, uh, Johnny Cueto, Brandon Webb, Aaron Nola. Um, those are, and I'm not going to say those are my top five guys, but they they're really close, you know, because I you know Freddie Garcia was so good in in 2001 and 2002. There's guys that were excellent. Aaron Seeley was phenomenal. Dan, Danny Heron and and Bronson Arroyo and Homer Bailey. A lot of guys that we had in Cincinnati and Zach Wheeler last year in the, in Philadelphia and Zach Eflin, who I think is going to end up being an all-star pitcher there in, in Philadelphia. They had so many of these guys, but when you really think about, they all did it differently. Jamie, it was being able to pitch off of his change at Brandon Webb. It was a, a power sinker. He could throw a hundred pitches in a game and 92 of them went, would be sinkers. And he throw a one, nothing shutout Felix, because he had the three best pitches in baseball at the time, fastball, curveball, change up, and he could command them. So that was the most dominant Johnny Cueto, who was had the best feel for pitching um, that, that I can remember. And Aaron Nola, who's just truly the best worker, professional, best prepared, most prepared guy. And that doesn't mention Max, Max Scherzer and Scherzer, you know, I, I didn't have for a super long time, but you know, he's ended up having about as good a career as you could imagine. So I'm really fortunate to have been around those guys. They taught me more than I taught them. I can tell you that. So I love, great baseball stories. And I imagine you have a lot of great baseball stories. Do you have a favorite that you like to tell? You know what? The story for me, which was really cool was, uh, and again, this is totally obscure is, um, we had a, was maybe 2004. I think it was, we didn't have a very good team in Seattle. It's the first time we hadn't been good in a few years. And, and, uh, and Gilmesh had started, in New York. And I don't know, I don't think he made it out of the first inning. And so he's out of the game. And so we burn up the bullpen. And so and this is a Friday game. So we got a Saturday game and we got another starter and he gets in trouble early and Gil walks by me and he says, Brian, I'm going to get my spikes. I'm going out of the bullpen. Use me. And so he goes down to the bullpen. And I don't think we ended up using him. And I remember the next day it was Sunday morning. We were having a Sunday day game. And I remember bringing all the guys. It was old Yankee stadium. So you had that uh, old, it was an old, it was an old clubhouse small. And, and the only place that we could go, we'll get the whole group in <laughs> was the showers. They had a big shower, big shower area with uh, like eight shower heads in it. Right. But nobody's in the shower at the time. I said, guys, all right, everybody in the shower. <laughs> And so this pregame, and uh, I'll tell you, I might get emotional on this one because it was, we had a bad team and we had a bad series. We lost the first two games. And I was so proud of those guys. And for Gilmesh to come in there and say, hey, Brian, I'm going down there. I want to pitch and tell Bob. And Bob Melvin was managing the club. And he says, tell Bob, I'm good to go. Use me as much as you want. And, and those guys were just grinding. We weren't very good. And we had a lot of younger guys on there and they just were gamers. They were just relievers that were pitching more than they should. Cause our starters were struggling a little bit. And you, in that moment on a bad team could not have been more proud of that bunch of guys. And I got them into the showers. And I, I remember I was brought to tears by the uh, effort and the amount of respect they had for each other to just, 
take the ball and maybe get their brains beat in. If they didn't do the job the day before, they were saying, get me back in there. And you're going, you shouldn't pitch. You know, you threw 42 pitches in relief and, and you shouldn't, and no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm pitching. And Gil, Gil to come by and say, hey, I'm good. I'm pitching uh, if you need me. It was a moment of pride that I had in a group that I, I don't know was ever replicated. Hmm. And uh, that was one of my moments that I'll just never, I mean, there's a million great moments where you walked off a team and you won a division and you did some special things in the playoffs. But I'll tell you, there's not a prouder moment in my life than, than that series in New York with, uh, with Gil and the guys battling it out for each other. Brian, that's a great story. I kept you way longer than I promised, but this was so good. Thank you so much for all the time. We really appreciate it. Hope we get a chance to do it again soon. This was fun. That'd be great, Gary. I appreciate you having me on.